Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome to HPI. I am Dr. Cody Jackson, and I'll be your navigator through today's journey of history of present interview. Wilma's series at the crossroads where the interests of the people meet the people of interest. Wilma is the Western Regional Component of the American College of Occupational and Environmental Medicine. Wilma podcasts are a benefit for Wilma members to stay current on topics of interest to occupational and environmental medicine physicians and allies. The Wilma Education Committee members involved in planning this presentation and Dr. Sandrock have no relevant financial relationships to disclose and have no conflicts of interest. On today's podcast, we'll discuss updates to the COVID-19 pandemic and its interaction with public health with Dr. Christian Sandrock, an internist who specializes in critical care, infectious disease, and pulmonary disease. Welcome to the show, Christian. Thank you. Hope you're doing well, Dr. Jackson. Getting back into the new normal with traveling, going to group events, what are the risks to air crew pilots, to the people attending conferences or serving the buffet at the conference? How, how can these exposures be mitigated? Are what we're doing helpful? What are your thoughts on that? It's a great question and, and you know, not every scenario is exactly the same. So I think that can make things a little bit difficult. Uh, but in general, there's sort of a group of a large way you can sort of look at responding to that risk and mitigating that risk. And I think, you know, obviously we'll start with vaccination status. You know, the unvaccinated are much more likely to acquire disease than the vaccinated. We do know with the Delta variant that a vaccinated individual could not only shed virus, but they're able to spread that locally. But it appears that the transmissibility of an unvaccinated person is significantly less than a vaccinated person. So that would be one thing that would help you mitigate it. So if you're flying or going to a conference or in a hotel, by being vaccinated, you've already significantly not only reduced your risk of disease acquisition, but the likelihood of you spreading it to another individual if you do get sick is lower. That's one thing. Number two is obviously wearing masks, particularly if you're indoors, which I'll mention second next, but that's going to reduce the likelihood of spread. So, you know, if you're on an airplane, you're vaccinated, you're wearing a mask the entire time you're on a plane, you know, your likelihood of getting infected is under, well under 1%. It's very low. So, um, and, you know, obviously airlines now have this you know, we recirculate the air, it's exposed to UV light or it's these, you know, decontaminated or through a HEPA filter and so forth. So there's additional features, but even in the absence of that, you know, and you just have your seatmate next to you and they're, you know, they have their mask on, that also will play a role. So if you're masked, great. If everyone else around you is masked, that's significantly lower than those people not being masked. And then lastly is the sort of indoor outdoor rule. If you're outside, um, the likelihood of being infected, particularly if you have a breeze or airflow is going to be much lower than if you're inside in a place where you don't have that airflow. You might have seen there was some CDC guidance that suggested when people get together, make sure you have airflow in your house, like open the windows and doors, because there's a number of studies showing that even if you're inside, by having the windows and doors open and air flowing through, the likelihood of infection is significantly lower. So it's sort of a three, you know couple different factors, be vaccinated versus not, wear a mask versus not, be in a situation if you're indoors, that's our outdoors is better than indoors. If you're indoors, hopefully everyone else wears a mask. If you're indoors, make sure there's some airflow and that probably reduces the risk. And in general, most people, when you look at spread, 
they're almost always going to get it from family members and friends. So is it, you know, it's not impossible to go out to dinner or to go out into a crowded environment and get COVID. That happens. But the bulk of the disease spread happens at the family um, and so that family unit level and that close contact. So, you know, maybe someone gets it at work or gets it in another area, but then brings it into the family and then spreads it to another family unit. And that's really where most of the spread occurs. So for me, I'm flying and I'm going to meetings. I'm just vaccinated. I wear my mask. You know, I bring alcohol gel and, you know, do the best I can to limit that. And so far I've done okay. Um, including going to Florida, you know, in the summer at the height of their, you know, their cases in Texas as well. That's great to hear. I think that really fits in well to the to the next question. You mentioned family units being the biggest source of infection. So you mentioned that the family unit was a big source of infection. And I imagine with the workers and the employers that we work with, they have a very high concern from getting exposure by their coworkers. And at the same time, there's people that have to do work very hard and perhaps maybe they can't do it with a mask on and they have to have a respirator fit or something like that. Can you maybe talk through how you speak with your patients about interacting with work and utilizing a a mask or advocating for them to get immunized or wear a mask when they're at work or to work with employers to, you know, kind of fill up, really get that comfort level to make sure that not only that your patient is feeling comfortable and safe, but also that their coworker is also feeling comfortable and safe. It's hard. I, obviously it varies uh, per environment, but, you know, I do have, you know, and that I have had patients who will say, Hey, when I go back to work, I work in a way that I'm unable to wear a mask for, you know, because the work I'm doing is so physical or I'm sweating or it's just, you know, that mask is going to be damaged and um, it's hard. So hard for me to wear one um, in those situations. You know, my recommendations often are, well, are you able to work alone or with enough space from another colleague? So if they, if you have to work maskless at your job, which happens um, the most common thing I tend to see is people in, you know, in construction or any physical labor that are working outside, they often can work without a mask. But however, those same people, if they're cutting concrete or cutting tile, are often wearing other protection for those reasons. And they can survive, you know, as you mentioned, with something um, more fancy than a standard surgical mask and maybe, you know, a last American mask that has the appropriate filters. And I think those, um, you know, that's really the key is to try and make sure the employees have the resources they need. They're able to be protected from COVID or just any other respiratory exposure they have. The number one thing we recommend is vaccination because that does not cost any money to either you or your employer. So just get vaccinated because that'll at least reduce that possibility as well and prevent you from not only missing work, but more likely having, you know, uh, long haul symptoms associated with COVID. At least that's what we think now. So most of my talking through my patients is number one, be vaccinated. Number two, wear a mask. Number three, if you can't wear a mask, is it a situation where there are better masks available that you can actually wear in those environments? So like an elastic elastomeric mask, which granted are very uncomfortable, you can't wear them all day, but in certain critical moments where you may be close to others, you know, you're able to wear that sometimes, particularly in, in certain construction and other field positions, you can do that as well. And I think that's, and then lastly, again, is what we talked about not only spacing out from your coworkers, but 
having that ability to have some form of ventilation. So here, for example, um, in the hospital, we had cases that were spread from worker to worker early on. And what became apparent is we had PPE, we had masks, but staff needed a place to have a lunch break and eat. And what would happen is two or three people might be on break and they would eat together in the break room, poor ventilation, almost certainly less than six feet. And they have no mask on because they're eating. And then there were cases that were, were spread that way. So as a result, you know, you just change the environment to say, okay, we're going to eat alone. Or many people who have an office have to eat in the office, or we're going to have eating areas that are now outside, but protected from the sun. So we're able to sort of meet the needs of people where they can be maskless and be maskless for that period of time, but then not uh, increase their risk of acquisition of SARS-CoV-2. So it's more things like that that I'll sort of talk through with my patients. But I admit it's not universal. It's sometimes, a, for lack of a better term, a game time decision that I'll work with them and sort of customize it for my patients' needs. And sometimes they're really stuck. They're in jobs where it's really hard and it's clear their employer is not going to support them and wearing some masks. And that's where I'm like, you know, the easiest thing you can do in control is getting vaccinated. That's probably the most important step that reduce your likelihood of getting disease and say, you know, the vaccine fails from a standpoint of you getting disease. At least we know your likelihood of having a bad outcome is going to be much lower. Wow. What a wealth of information and insight for our listeners. I think that's some great ideas too. It's very important to always tailor your treatment plan and guidance for each patient when, when able to, and then also provide some of those easy solutions like separation and isolation that are, I think, common when we study about them. But in practice, we're so busy and we're always thinking about our patients that when it comes to us, we don't always always think about those things. So thanks for bringing that to light. All right. So now moving on, I'm going to throw out some fun questions so that the audience can get to know you better. Does that work for you? Um, that's fine, but I'm not familiar with that word. What is fun? <laughs> I know, right? I forgot so what that is. Hopefully you will experience it now. <laughs> exactly, right? You gave us a little bit of a, a glimpse into your very uh, busy past, especially leaving your, your car out in a no parking zone. Uh, I want to know where in time would you go and why? Oh, if I could time travel? Um, yes. Interesting. I always had an answer that I wouldn't time travel. I'm happy with where I am, but I am going to say um, there's one slight variation to that. I went to Alaska actually in September. I finally took my first vacation. And one of the nice things about going to Alaska was that um, I really went out in the wilderness where I heard nothing, didn't see people, didn't see anything man-made, um, was really out there for a period of time. And it was wonderful. And I kind of would love to go back to a time maybe, I don't know, five or 10,000 years ago, where I could see the United States where really very few people lived here or just, you know, indigenous people populated, but it wasn't all strip malls and houses and everything else. And I got to see this country the way it actually was, right? So I grew up in New Jersey, right outside New York City. I would love to see the way that place looked uh, before anybody actually really had set up the big cities there. Same with California. Um, it'd be interesting to see what Sacramento looked like, um, you know, before climate change and everything else has sort of come along. And that's probably the only thing I can think of. Just go back in a time where, you know, it was quiet. I was well down the uh, totem pole on the food chain list um, and not at the top as we all are now. And, uh, you know, just had to struggle to survive. There's something just, you know, romantic about that. And that, you know, I don't know how far back that would be, maybe 5,000 or 10,000 years. I'm not sure. But at a time where there was a heck of a lot less people on the planet. Wow, that, that sounds great. 
I know that if I were alone, I'd definitely be listening to my own tinnitus. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Well, I, there was some of that. It was oddly uncomfortable. You know, you realize how you get used to man-made sounds. And then my wife would tell me, you know, you're a wimp. You're not going to last more than three minutes if you went back 10,000 years. And she's probably right, but I can at least dream. It would be a glorious three minutes, though. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All righty. Jumping back onto the COVID train here. Let's see here. How, how does recurrent exposure, you know, in the endemic sense, I guess, after one's vaccinated, how does that affect one's immunity and, and chance for breakthrough cases, I guess? You know, and I, I hope I understand what you mean, but um, exposure doesn't always mean infection. And I think each time you're exposed out in the living your life, whether it's at work or in the community, you know, you're increasing your likelihood of having an infection, whether it's a breakthrough infection, if you're vaccinated or not, if you're unvaccinated. So that's actually a great question. There is, you know, certainly we know in vaccinated patients, they can get infection, they can get symptomatic disease. We know now through data that came out recently that they are able to spread the virus, albeit in lower, you know, lower infectivity rates um, than what we would see with an unvaccinated person. That exposure um, is always hard to say. So if you're exposed, is that strengthening your immune system? Probably through an exposure, no, but if you actually see the virus and are able to mount a response, um, and whether it's, you know, you're totally asymptomatic and you didn't know it all the way through actually having some symptoms, that is a, a primer that actually builds on immunity. And one of the things we've seen is if you look at some of the literature, the, the most robust immune responses occur generally in two people. Those that actually had COVID initially and then got subsequently vaccinated, preferably 30 days after the end of the acute infection, or uh, people were vaccinated and then they had a breakthrough infection. And those that subgroups, particularly if the breakthrough infection was with the Delta variant, seem to have uh, a profoundly strong immune response to the virus that if they're exposed again, you know, they're, they're much less likely to have more symptomatic disease or a poor outcome. So hopefully that answered your question, but um, you know, it's, it's always a hard question to know whether exposure or infection, you know, whether exposure really adds anything. Certainly an infection is going to give you protection, but that infection paired with a vaccine, whichever comes first is probably the most profoundly uh, in best, the, the best immunity we can, we can have. Perfect. You completely answered the question. I appreciate that. Going a little bit deeper into immunization and vaccines, now they're talking about mixing the, the two different types of uh, or brands of vaccine uh, for the boosters. Can you maybe talk about that and walk us through, you know, why we're able to mix and match these vaccines? You know, there's been some data collected about the mixing and maxing, matching of vaccines, and I'm sort of going to classify them in uh, two categories. One is the mRNA vaccines, which, you know, the Pfizer and the uh, Moderna vaccines um, will fall in that category. And then you have the live virus or the adenovirus vaccines, which is what AstraZeneca or J&J are. And there's obviously been some data looking at mixing um, within the world of the mRNA vaccines. You know, if you start out with Pfizer and you get a booster with uh, Moderna or vice versa, that appears to provide, you know, strong immunity when you mix and match those, that subgroup. When you look at the, the adenovirus vaccines, you know, AstraZeneca and J&J &J were meant to be one um, initially. Now, obviously, there's data that a booster benef uh, is beneficial. But it appears that if you have, for example, J&J &J or AstraZeneca, and you follow that by one mRNA shot, um, whether whichever virus, uh, whatever vaccine you choose, 
you actually have really strong protection that way as well. So you can mix and match those viruses, those vaccines and have protection against the virus pretty adequately. So people who've had J&J and they then get Pfizer, that's perfect and is probably going to give you as good reliability as having two Pfizer shots. And that's kind of what the data is sort of showing now. And that's where, you know, when you probably heard a few months ago, people say, oh, we're seeing really robust and better immune responses with mixing and matching. That's sort of the data, particularly with AstraZeneca or J&J, where you then mix it with an mRNA. We saw that strength. Interestingly enough, if you gave, if you had the Pfizer first, and then you got the adenovirus one, such as J&J second, we didn't see that benefit there. It only really existed if you had the adenovirus virus first, followed by the mRNA. That's where the data was the strongest. And does that have something to do with the, the antigens that it's stimulating the body to, to protect against? We think so, that there's probably some benefit of having, you know, the J&J first has a slightly different cellular response than what you're going to get with the mRNA anti-spike protein and neutralizing antibodies. So I think what happens is with the mRNA, then you don't really get a good take with the J&J or the AstraZeneca vaccine second, because you just have already had some exposure to, you know, to the spike protein. So it doesn't have the same uptake as opposed to starting with the adenovirus, you get that infection. There's a little bit of an uptake, you develop some immunity, and then you do a beautiful job of just introducing the mRNA of the spike protein, and you then have that, that response. So I think the answer is yes, what you're mentioning, but I think it's really, you know, uh, by having that that spike protein immunity up front, it actually diminishes the adenovirus um, efficacy afterwards. I just love how you said it's a beautiful job. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. Do you have a surprising or most interesting case that you can share or that you've learned from? You know, one case that's surprising, and unfortunately, it's not going to be an acute, it's going to be uh, long COVID in one of our employees, she got sick, actually felt pretty crummy at home, never saw a doctor, never was admitted, but she was infected back at the end of February, 2020. And I'm still, she's working now with us, but I am flabbergasted at how tachycardic and hypoxemic she gets whenever she runs or moves. So if we, for example, go to a code or respond to a critically ill patient, she has to walk and take her time. And I think, you know, it's, it's a surprise. Wow. I'm just surprised at how far out she is and how there's still this persistence in some people. So I don't know if that's an interesting case or a depressing case, but um, I think the, the heterogeneity of disease with this virus is always just fascinating. And this is one that's one of those outliers. I mean, I, I, you know, I've had a number of critically ill patients with all varying disease. Um, I've seen so much COVID now that I don't, I really can't say they're interesting cases anymore in any <laughs> regard. Um, so I kind of try to stay away from those and interesting examples because um, unfortunately they get exhausting. Yeah, I can imagine. Okay, well, let's try this fun thing again and hopefully these will be a little bit more fun. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this is our rapid fire portion and we'll, we'll give you a brief minute or so to, to answer them. Just kind of name the first thing that pops into your head, okay? Oh, it sounds good. I hope my bosses are listening. <laughs> good thing it is, it's recorded so they can replay it. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Exactly. Hopefully that'll get me a few weeks off. <laughs> what is your favorite food? Oh, I'd say French fries. What scares you? Um, the world, um, the way it's going to be for my children when I'm gone. What's your favorite movie? I would say right now, let me say, there's, that's a really hard answer, one to answer, but I'd probably say um, 
eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. What's something you start but have a hard time finishing? Anything healthy. (laughs) (laughs) So exercise or a diet or avoiding caffeine. (laughs) Yeah. Or not drinking beer. (laughs) Um, Well, Christian, it's been great fun getting to know you and the the wealth of information and knowledge and guidance about COVID that you've uh, helped our listeners and clinicians better answer the questions of their patients. To set us up for our next episode about the mental health aspect of COVID, I feel this next question really takes a lot of mental strength, not only to admit, but overcome. And I'm very happy to be on uh, this side of the question. What's something that you believed for a long time to be true and then decided that you had been wrong? (laughs) I'd give the easy answer, which is that my wife is wrong, but I realize she's always right. Um, That's an easy one. But I would say the thing I can think of now is um, what I'm really surprised with, with the literature is I always thought a very good bedside clinician would outcompete any scoring system, any algorithm. So the hunch that the physician would have Um, as to what disease state they have, for example, how sick the patient may be, would trump anything, whether it's artificial intelligence, a scoring system, any, any, you know, and I'm thinking of things like, you know, the, the port score for pneumonia, curb 65, things like this. And unfortunately, the literature is showing that a scoring system does a better job in sometimes uh, figuring out the severity of illness and the likelihood of disease than we do. And um, I used to always think we were better. And now I don't necessarily believe that always. That's that Watson, right? Yeah, exactly right. (laughs) I look, I think about it and I'm like, computer's smarter than me. This is not good. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for your time today, Christian. It's been a pleasure getting to know your HPI. Until next time, everyone, please stay safe, stay healthy.